Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much for listening, tuning in, or whatever we call it in the world of podcasts. And also, thanks to all those who tuned in to watch the live virtual show via the King's Place website um, the Monday before this one. Lots of you did, so I hope you had a good time. Uh, It's always curious doing these virtual shows, but some people tweeted to me that in some ways they kind of really like them because it means you can watch them from outside London when they're normally based in London or outside Edinburgh when they're normally based in Edinburgh. So there are some liberating elements to doing live virtual shows, but obviously it's not the same as being in the same hall with an audience and the audience being such a key part of the proceedings for me anyway but it's been and continues to be an interesting experience and the next one is on Monday July the 27th coming up this year is whizzing past us and it will be the last of the political year the political year kind of ends in July and then begins again in September and I'll be looking back at a political year which I think has been the most astonishing since 1945 for the 12 months from last July. I mean, quite unbelievable things have been going on. And I'll be reflecting on those and taking questions and predictions and having a discussion with all of you who can uh, make it. Uh, That's Monday, 7pm, and tickets now on sale at the King's Place website for the virtual show. And then they give you a code and then you can log in and click a link and we're off at 7 o'clock on the 27th. I won't reflect on some of those extraordinary things now because we've got enough to think about in this podcast. It is almost beyond belief what's happening on the Brexit front, submerged by the COVID nightmare, but under normal circumstances would be a huge story, or you'd like to think it would be a huge story. I think there is an assumption with some that, oh, it's all over, you know, this Brexit stuff, it's over. Um, It's all very dated to even talk about it. But actually, some quite astonishing things are happening. The announcement uh, that the government's going to spend £750 million on infrastructure at the ports, basically making it more difficult to trade with the UK's biggest economy, is a vivid example of this act of self-harm which has been going on now for the last few years already hundreds of millions if not billions spent on the process and indeed they're spending the government many millions on explaining how we all need to get ready for this great moment of liberation at uh, the beginning of January higher travel insurance uh, higher mobile phone calls when you go to Europe are the first two things that um, we are free to enjoy when we take back control. And there's going to be so much more. There's quite a lot of confusion still about how the borders will work vis-a-vis Northern Ireland. This border infrastructure costing £750 million is not related to the Northern Ireland border infrastructure that will be required if the government sticks to the withdrawal agreement details. And with this government, it's always an if because it tends to break all rules and assumptions about how you govern. And I think at some point, some of those who 
voted Brexit with a sense of liberation, will begin to wonder whether this version of Brexit um, is the one that they seek. Perhaps not yet, because we're still in this transitional year. But you do wonder, it will all be too late, but at some point, whether there is a realisation that taking back control was a phrase full of emotive potency, but without any precision at all take back control from what to what? What are the mediating agencies through which you take back control? So many questions that weren't properly probed in that period. And Labour have a very big call to make. So far, Keir Starmer has decided there's no point engaging with this phase of Brexit. And it is just the latest phase. It was a lie that Brexit was done. Let's get Brexit done. And it was a lie that uh, Johnson had an oven-ready deal, ready to go. We're in the midst of a highly complex, high-stakes negotiation of which nothing is oven-ready with the clock ticking. And, and Starmer, wholly understandably, has decided to keep out of it for the obvious reason that Labour lost huge numbers of votes in the so-called Northern Wall, uh, largely because of Brexit. There were other factors, not least a capacity for disillusionment, which is um, deeply embedded in British politics, not just in that region, but across the UK in different ways. But Brexit played a huge part, and... Starmer feels he's almost walking into a trap to raise questions now. We know Cummings has concluded he's not much of a threat because Cummings apparently calls him that remainery lawyer. And therefore it is a trap to say anything or do anything that suggests that you don't accept the outcome of the referendum and the 2019 election. But I think there will come a point where Starmer can say to use the in-word of these times, it's patriotic to point out the problems with this particular version of Brexit. This high-wire act in which no deal remains a possibility, and if not a no deal, a very bad deal. That juxtaposition is one that Johnson enjoys playing with. He did it in the autumn of last year, when no deal was a prospect, he came up with a very bad deal, but presented it as a triumph because it was better than no deal. And he maybe will do the same, come up with the most threadbare, flimsy deal, which will be terrible for the British economy, but claim it as a great negotiating triumph because it was no deal. Now, at the moment, uh, he has the support of most newspapers. BBC are pretty scared of raising it. And indeed, any questions last Friday, I noted, had three very hardline Brexiteers in a panel of four. So they obviously think the battle is won and there is little space for an alternative point of view. But clearly there is an alternative point of view and you can hear it in a somewhat scattered way at the moment from the National Farmers Union, not known for its left-wing tendencies, campaigning against the kind of Brexit that's looming. You can hear it uh, in so far muffled voices from some business sectors. And you will hear it also via opinion polls, which suggest that even Brexiteers in that famous Northern Wall area 
actually were in favour of a delay, an extension to these negotiations, rather than rushing as the extreme Brexiteers in the government want towards this brick wall at the end of December. So there are kind of muffled indications out there of concern. And Starmer needs to reflect them at some point and claim to be patriotic in doing so, to judge that in the interests of Britain, he is pointing out the flaws of this approach to Britain's biggest market. He will, of course, preface everything by saying Brexit is done. This is not a debate about Brexit. He should mock uh, the attempts of the government to portray him as still wanting remain. He could even pledge as a leader never to even contemplate going back in, because I think in his time span, uh, if he becomes prime minister, that won't be feasible. There are other things he could do, but not that. To try and give him the space to become a critique of what I think is going to be an economically calamitous Brexit. Remember, these two options now being a bad deal or no deal. And it is delusional. It's not based on much evidence. Um, Michael Gove and others cites the excitement of a deal with, I don't know, New Zealand and Japan and so on. They are tiny. And their deal with the United States depends on several factors. A willingness to import uh, crap food, the longevity of President Trump, an unreliable ally at the best of times who may well be gone after the presidential election in November, and so on. But I think in the way that this trio who run Britain, Gove, Cummings and Johnson, thought that the UK would somehow emerge unscathed from the Covid drama. Remember Johnson didn't attend any of the early Cobra meetings and there was a sense that the UK was so special it didn't have to follow what they saw as the misguided approaches of South Korea and others and Germany and so on. They had their own unique distinct ideas. So it is with this Brexit that although the government's own forecasts suggests uh, an economic drop with the route they are pursuing. They pursue it, I, I think, not out of a malevolence or sadism. I think they genuinely have convinced themselves that out of the disruption, a mighty UK will surface. And they're not really willing to reflect very long on the disruption beyond preparing for lorry parks in Kent and traffic jams going through a lot of Kent. It is a really weird time. And the main opposition can and should find the space to warn and oppose. Starmer, the other reason he's wary, and this is a good reason actually, is that there's nothing he can do about it. They've got this big majority and therefore the Commons, which was such an important stage last autumn, when Johnson had no overall majority but behaved imperiously as he had as if he had a huge majority, then the opposition, if they had got their act together, could have done all kinds of things. But for reasons I'm going to reflect on in that live virtual show when we dare to look back at this bizarre year, they didn't. Instead they gave him the election he wanted on the day he wanted. And so there is impotence in the House of Commons. But this is a government not wholly indifferent to 
public opinion, focus groups and all the rest of it. And there might just be a way to put some pressure on them to be a bit more evidence-based as they move towards the edge of a cliff voluntarily to get Brexit voters who now want a sensible Brexit to get business leaders to argue for a sensible Brexit and for them themselves to do it. It is without the leverage in the Commons, so he might conclude it's pointless. But at some point before the cliff edge is reached, which is really kind of September, actually, because then the whole thing has to be voted on in Europe and elsewhere, if there is anything to vote on, there needs to be some sense of growing alarm out there for the trio running Britain to notice. And this raises other issues and challenges for Keir Starmer. His 100 days has passed as Labour leader. And on the whole, it's been a very successful one because he's doing well personally in the polls, although the Labour Party still has a long way to go. But that's not wholly surprising. The Labour Party has been attacking each other in public for years now both sides. Uh, there was a wonderful clip of Harold Wilson speaking in his last speech to a Labour conference. It must have been, I don't know, 1975 or something like that. And um, Wilson then warned about faction fighting. And it was a fascinating clip. It was a clip on YouTube, I think, because Wilson, first of all, said, there is no space in this Labour Party for extreme left-wingers to faction fight and to turn on others within the Labour Party. And there was a cutaway of all the kind of Labour moderates of that era, kind of Reg Prentice cheering ecstatically. Reg Prentice, incidentally, who ended up going to the Conservatives. But then Wilson said, and also there are the extreme moderates who have been equally guilty of stirring internal hatred and we have no time for that either and he called you know he just and it was a very interesting balanced assessment of the dangers of infighting and of course uh, Labour have endured both battles between the uh, Corbynistas and the extreme moderates out there on Twitter on the radio screaming both of them and the electorate who don't follow politics, we can see that with the whole COVID twists and turns that have obsessed some. Clearly, it hasn't obsessed a majority because a majority still say they would vote Conservative, which is quite something after what's happened with COVID. One of the highest death rates and the biggest hit to the economy any country. So they don't follow things, but they do notice if a party is so dysfunctional that it's spending much of its energy hating another part of that party. And that all needs to be calmed down before even voters look at the party Labour. Uh, so it's not that surprising. But it could have also been that Starmer was a flop too in that context. When a party is down, a leader can be submerged as well. And he inherited a difficult situation with the COVID situation dominating. Johnson, I think, when he became leader, was in hospital or just out. Huge levels of public sympathy for Johnson. And he could have either flopped or felt totally marginal uh, as a leader. And that hasn't happened. Uh, and the reason being partly that he has done something quite unique. He has challenged uh, Johnson. 
uh, Johnson, in a way, it's it's a form of brilliance, has risen to the top without ever really being closely scrutinised. He wasn't uh, scrutinised when he was foreign secretary very much, and when he was, he tended to screw things up. He wasn't scrutinised greatly as uh, mayor of London. During the leadership contest, there were fairly shallow meetings of candidates and so on. And on TV and radio, there were limited chances for real scrutiny. And same with the general election, where he faced weak opponents and refused to uh, do certain interviews, such as with Andrew Neil. Fair enough, it's up to him. Uh, entirely fair enough. But he can't escape PMQs. And Starmer has done well there, and he's got a grip of the party machinery without a huge uproar in public, which would have been a total confirmation of a dysfunctional party. So he's done some good things, but he also faces real challenge. One of them is how you respond to Rishi Sunak's Keynesianism. Now, it might be a shallow attachment to Keynesianism. Uh, People tell me that his instincts, Rishi Sunak, is basically that of an economic liberal who would have been great supporter of Osborne economics in 2010, which was based on precisely the opposite set of assumptions to his high-spend, high-borrow approach to this crisis. But it nonetheless is challenge and an opportunity for Keir Starmer. The opportunity is that uh, when a party moves on to the terrain of your party, it is a sign that the battle of ideas is moving towards you. And when that happens, a party who absolutely fundamentally believes in those ideas can be in a much stronger place. But they have to deal with the march onto their ideological terrain very carefully. Let me give you an example of how not to deal with it. After the 1997 uh, Labour landslide, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown kept to very tight Conservative spending plans, as they had pledged to do. Even though public services were on their knees, and one of the reasons they were on their knees was a lack of money the underfunding that had gone on for years. Uh, But nonetheless, they stuck to spending plans that Ken Clark, the outgoing chancellor, had decided as eye-wateringly tight and plans that he himself was not planning to adhere to if he was re-elected, but they did. And William Hague, then the new leader of the opposition, made the great mistake of describing this adherence to eye-wateringly tight Tory spending plans as profligate and reckless. In describing them in those terms, he walked into a trap because it gave Blair and Brown then the space to frame the Conservative Party as a threat to public services. When they were being dismissed as reckless and profligate, for keeping to incredibly tough public spending, it raised the question, well, what the hell would William Hague do to the NHS and all these other services? And what Hague should have done is said to Blair and Brown, well done for becoming conservatives, for moving not just a bit onto our terrain, but adopting our policies. And while you do so, we'll support you. We don't think your conversion is sincere, 
We think you are shallow Tories and will over time become reckless and profligate. And when you do that, we will oppose you because we are sincere Tories. We believe in looking after the voters' money and all those kind of populist things that you can frame a right-wing economic argument around. And in backing them at the beginning, it would have had the effect of, A, not falling into that spend trap, but also of unnerving some Labour MPs and Labour members who would think, well, hold on a second, we've waited 18 years uh, to get into government and we're now pursuing policies supported by the Tory party and it would have generated tensions within the governing party. And therefore what Starmer and Annalisa Dodd, his new shadow chancellor, need to do is the reverse of that but the same principle. To say to Rishi Sunak and indeed Boris Johnson, well done for following the principles of Labour economic policy that we have been arguing for two decades, including the first term of your government. And by the way, Keir Starmer should always refer to this as the fourth term of a Conservative government, because voters tire of governments. You are using the arguments we use when we opposed your government in the first term, when it was doing exactly the opposite of what you're doing now. While you pursue these Keynesian policies, we will welcome your conversion, but we will follow like a hawk your execution and your commitment and the scale of your conversion. And in that, we challenge X, Y, and Z. And in that kind of, you then create a space whereby you claim or start to claim a sort of ideological victory and then yet have the scope to challenge the scale of their commitment, the execution of that commitment, and so on. All of which looks already as if there are big questions. It was very interesting. The media follows a kind of unthinking orthodoxy, so the fashion is now to praise Rishi Sunak if he stands up, if he sits down, if he has a cup of tea, and certainly if he makes a financial statement. So they were all saying, here he is again, amazing. But the IFS and others, the Resolution Foundation, in scrutinising the proposals, found many flaws, not least in the alternative to the furlough solution, where employers will get a certain money amount of money if they keep on those who are furloughed, when they, you discover that most of those employers were intending to keep quite a lot of those on anyway, so you're just handing out money, etc. There were flaws, but... The broader context is so interesting. They justify their economic policy of borrowing and spending on the grounds that this is the way to generate economic recovery, for now at least. And if they change and say, right, now is the time to get it all back, uh, to go back to Osborne economics, you challenge them again on that basis. So I think there are kind of opportunities in the Sunak stroke Johnson stroke Cummings economic project as well as challenges and potential traps but the thing I say not to do is to unequivocally condemn when they are currently spending and borrowing more than Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell had ever dreamt of doing 
And in that way, you can use it to sort of get a consensus around the acceptance of the idea that public spending can have benevolent consequences. It was impossible in the 80s and 90s to even start to make that case. You'd immediately get editorials from the Times saying, this is a complete waste of money. What we need is, in inverted commas, reform. They never specified what reforms would deliver as if by magic, the equivalent of investment that takes place in Germany or other equivalent European countries. But that was the argument. And that argument is no longer in place. And some Tory MPs are starting to be uncomfortable. It was interesting in response to Rishi Sunak as he stood there walking on water. Edward Lee said, intervened and said, look, please don't forget us Thatcherites. Um, you know, we believe in sound money, low taxes, tax cuts as a way of generating economic recovery, not all this borrowing and spending. And it was an interesting moment because the Thatcherites have had it their way in terms of the media and political consensus since 79. The Labour government did really well over time, finally, in increasing investment levels in key sectors. But it took a long time. It took a lot of stealthy activity from Gordon Brown. And then it took a painstaking strategy to overtly raise money for the NHS through a tax rise. But boy, was it agonising to do and to watch, although incidentally, both the tax rise and the investment were incredibly popular. It was Brown's most popular budget. But even then, a lot of the newspapers, I remember including The Independent, said it was outrageous, money wasn't the answer. You know, there was an absolute consensus that borrowing and spending were sinful and wasteful. That consensus has gone. And in that space, there are opportunities for Keir Starmer, but as I say, also dangers. So there we are. What another few days of uh, hyper politics. And I've got a feeling it will continue like this now. I notice even in August, when things normally subside, a lot of politicians are staying in the United Kingdom. They don't want to be stuck quarantined somewhere else, which is quite possible with this unpredictable virus lurking at all times. So there are going to be many, many twists and turns to come. But thank you so much for listening this week. I'll be back next week. And as I say, I hope some of you at least can tune in for the live virtual show on July the 27th, when we'll all be together reflecting on this astonishing political year. Just, just to give you one example, about this time a year ago, as MPs and ministers and others were on holiday, all the talk was over how MPs could stop the no-deal Brexit that appeared to be one route out for Johnson and Cummings, given their pledge to get the withdrawal agreement signed by October the 31st. And there were people on mobile phones in swimming pools, not literally 12 months ago, but certainly by August, conspiring and feeling at the very least empowered. And all of them no longer have any power at all. Those who were planning and plotting 
to uh, stop some of Johnson Cummings Gove's most reckless plans. That trio, while unquestionably ideologically and politically reckless, have also been, in terms of campaigning, triumphant. And we'll look at why and oh, so many other things as well. Where do you stop? Where do you start? Anyway, I'm stopping now, but thank you so much for listening and hope you can tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you.